Welcome to the New Space India podcast, a bi-weekly talk show that exclusively captures insightful conversations with people contributing to advancement of space activities in India. The New Space India podcast is pleased to announce our association with Dassault Systems, a global leader in providing business and people with collaborative virtual environments to imagine sustainable innovations. Dassault Systems Solutions supports startups small and medium sized enterprises and original equipment manufacturers in developing disruptive solutions for space launchers and satellite propulsion recently a supply chain digitization study with dassault systems was conducted to provide a foundational understanding of the supplier landscape in the indian space ecosystem please use the link in the description to download the public white paper of the results of this study which will also give you a perspective on how ready indian suppliers are to enter the global space market hi and welcome to another episode of the new space india podcast and in this episode we have professor kazuto suzuki from japan who is a political scientist and with the public policy school of hokkaido university uh, welcome professor suzuki to the show thank you narayan and thank you for inviting me japan is one of the most exciting new space geographies that uh, i have been following many many companies uh, such as spacepd you know astroscale and many others that have come out of japan very unique dimensions to what they try to do as well and you know in the sense that uh, i've been to japan only once and it's also a tremendous ecosystem of of people and given the size of the country and the amount of things that you are able to achieve including you know going out to asteroids and bringing samples and so on It's tremendous amount of uh, progress in terms of what a, a country like the size of Japan can do uh, as such it's always fascinating to know how much a country like Japan can do as such a lot of lessons that i see personally for myself and for a lot of people in india as well looking at japan so i wanted to chat with you about you know what has happened in japan over the last several decades and how has industry evolved or how has government policy evolved to support new space and so on for this episode of the new space india podcast so to begin with can you talk a little bit about the origins of the japanese space program and also the origins of just not the government policy but also the industry orientation towards being a part of the space program right well thank you very much i think it's uh... It can be a long story but um I'll try to make it as concise as possible. The origin of the Japanese space program was initially started after the World War II when the Japan was occupied by the allied forces and prohibited to do the aerospace industry uh, aerospace research. So the Japanese space program was the sort of a, a niche element of the aerospace industry where you can develop your your own without intervention from the allied forces and uh, dr itokawa who was um, a professor at the university of tokyo and uh, has developed its the small launcher called the pencil rocket and then gradually developed its nationally autonomous launcher uh, which is now um, called the ipsilon but this was the sort of a the japanese domestic track of the r&d in space but while japanese are developing its own 
launcher, which are using the solid propellant launcher, the United States consider this as the potential threat that Japan will possess the military, you know, the missile grade technology. So the United States tried to intervene and provided the liquid propellant technology based on the Thor Delta. And uh, then Japan, because of the political relationship with the United States, we accepted the Thor Delta technology and developed the uh, Japanese. The second but main launch technology, which is now called the H2A, and eventually which will be the H3 in the future. These are the sort of a launcher development, but at the same time, the Japan has done the satellite development. The origin was that the Japanese satellite companies, which are currently the Melco and NEC, but we used to have a Toshiba. So we had the three different companies involved and um, they are all connected to the U.S. companies, Ford and Lockheed and Boeing, well, then Hughes. And these are basically the learning how to build a satellite from the United States. So Japanese space program, having its own domestic origin, the autonomous capabilities, but at the same time, there is a strong influence from the United States for the political reasons. And that constructs the Japanese way in which to think about the space development as a whole. The idea of space development is basically to catch up with the United States because we learn a lot from from United States. And, you know, if we don't finish learning, then we cannot do our own research. So the Japanese engineers and scientists are trying to do as much as they can to catch up United States and be original. But, um, of course, the United States is progressing further so that, you know, it's sort of an eternal situation that you are catching up. Meanwhile, there was a big problem of the relationship with the military. The Japanese military, Japanese space technology were completely isolated from the military technology because Japan had a history of engineers contributing to the conduct of the World War II and which extended the, the time of the war longer than necessary. So the scientists and engineers after World War II decided as the sort of a coherent uh, and consensus of the academics that the academics will not contribute to the military-purposed project. So the Japanese space program were isolated from the military program and also the Diet, the Japanese parliament, has made a resolution in 1969 when Japan decided to accept the U.S. technology that the Japanese space program should be exclusively for the peaceful purposes. That exclusively for peaceful purpose appears many countries, but this, this is 
the interpretation of that is unique in Japan, that military shall not develop, own, operate, nor use space capabilities. So for many years, until 1985, Japanese military were not able to use the satellite communications nor the weather satellite data. So people start to think that, oh, this is too ridiculous. So you can use the sort of a general, you can use the space-based services for the general public, like a weather forecast. So military can use that, but still they are not allowed to own and operate space um, satellites. So like India, Japan has a very distinctive division between the space, uh, military space and civilian space. And we don't have the military space for many, many years until 2008. The 2008 was uh, uh, another uh, turning point when the Japan has changed the idea of this catching up and this civilian-only space to turn around and think that it is possible to use military purpose because of the change of the nature of the space development and also because of the commercial competition, the civilian alone, catching up alone, is no longer the right strategy because Japan has already come to a certain level. So now Japan has to change its objective from catching up to be competitive. So that is the sort of a brief history of the Japanese um, space. And I think it uh, leads to the, the way in which Japan turned into the new space programs. Right. Excellent. Thank you very much for that kind of an introduction. From what I see as a parallel to India, for example, and this is what uh, you can elaborate a little bit on is the uh, involvement on, or the nature of contracting between traditional industry, like you know, in Japan, where either you have companies like Meisei or you have uh, NEC and many other Japanese companies, which are large conglomerates today, probably smaller companies back then, fifty years ago, who are today you know billion dollar companies on on their own. And the space division may be 1% or 2% or less than 10% of their divisions today as of today. But they significantly do contribute to a lot of this. Mitsubishi is another large company as such. So what was the incentive for them to participate in the space program in, in Japan? Because you know, purely doing civilian stuff means that you have a limited volume, I would assume, because you know, it automatically limits the number of launches, number of satellites and everything else. And uh, and perhaps it's also not a, a big market like the electronics market, where many of these companies have been very successful globally to export a lot of their technology and products and services. So, and also, you know, how was uh, intellectual property being developed? Because in the case of India, uh, because of the high risks involved, the high amount of capital involved, the volumes being very little. The industry players in India were mostly looking at uh, being manufacturing partners because they did not want to take any risks at all. So how was these kinds of dynamics uh, evolved with the Japanese industry back then? That is a very interesting question. 
First of all, why big companies like Mitsubishi, heavy Mitsubishi Electric, medical or NEC involved in space? Well, I think there was a, initially there was a, a expectation that the space is going to be the sort of a next big thing. And uh, these companies need to be, well, invest and keep those technical capabilities in their companies to make sure that once, you know, space is taking off, then they can be more competitive. And, you know, if you start from scratch, then, you know, it takes a while. So they wanted to maintain the sort of a technical base. So it was more like a public investment rather than a commercial strategy. The second point is that um, the, those companies are pretty much the national companies. It's a it's private company, but it's it's more like a flag carrier companies. It's a sort of a representing Japan. So they have their own pride to be the one who who works in space and to represent Japan in the international programs such as ISS and um, you know the Artemis programs, you know, they, they they want to be a part of the sort of an international club of big guys. And the third, I think there is a big question about the profitability. The Japan, because of the catching up phase, the Japanese uh, public program was supposed to provide the sufficient, well, the Japanese companies are basically, they are not investing in space, not for the profitability, but because the government provide enough money to cover all the expenses. So the Japanese medical MHI, you know, these companies were able to, to put up all this uh, cost. And then it's a cost plus benefit, the cost plus profit scheme that they can submit as a R&D program so that they were able to at least not making a huge loss. So constant programs conducted by the taxpayers' money is enough to sustain the space division, even though it's a small portion of the, the big companies, but it makes certain business sense. Finally, I think one major thing that... We, that makes a difference from the Indian situation is that the Japan was under political pressure in 1980s during the trade friction with the United States. There was a big trade war, like it happens today between the United States and China. Japan was a target of because the, there was a massive export of automobiles, semiconductors, anything, you know, the even the washing machines are all exported to the United States. And there was a big controversies and there was a huge responses from the United States. United States used the political pressure for Japan to open up its market. And one of the target was the Japanese satellite procurement market. So the Japanese satellite programs have to be internationally open to the procurement, government procurement. So the government procurement for the commercializable, uh, I don't know how to call it, like 
telecommunication or broadcasting satellite has to be procured internationally. And of course, your current fleet, we have about 17 geostationary communication broadcasting satellite and uh, 15 of them are American. So that was a basic American strategy to open up the Japanese market to for the benefit of the American industry. And but so so the Japanese government has to focus heavily on the R&D program. And the Japanese industry find it hard to compete with American companies. Therefore they just trenched into the R&D program. So there was a sort of an unwritten agreement between the government and industry that, yes, the government provides sufficient funding for maintaining the space division in their country, in in their companies, and uh, space companies are satisfied if they are not making any losses. So there was a sort of an unspoken agreement to say, let's keep it that way and and um, so this is one of the reasons why that Japanese big companies were not commercially competitive in the international market right and what about uh, you know you talked about a little bit of the nature of contracting you know cost plus kind of an R&D framework uh, of this what was the incentive for you know the Japanese government to then contract the industry because what I'm trying to understand is, isn't that the way that they could have thought of as a way of getting more scientists to work directly with the space agency and spend the money directly there instead of having the industry do all of it? Because at the end of the day, then you have a certain government division which has the in-house capability to have developed the technology and the money having spent directly in the public system rather than you know that being spent in the in the private industry as such so you know that is where i see the core difference also between india and japan as such because we're looking at a framework where it's very very hard for any private company to get any sort of research funding uh, out of the public system but uh, you know there's there's only this framework of uh, you know buyback is what we have as a term in india where the industry invests the infrastructure needed to produce that particular subsystem or a particular part, and they only invest in people and the infrastructure. And then the technology is provided to them by the space agency, and they just produce it, match, matching to the quality requirements. And then you know they just benefit off of having the infrastructure and the qualified manpower doing it. So they don't really have any control over the intellectual property, which means that they cannot really sell that to anybody else because that particular part or the subsystem is really customized to be only working with Indian satellites or Indian architecture, right? So this limits a lot of these industries to kind of do business internationally. I think in a way, Japan and India has a lot of similarities, like, you know, civilian-oriented space programs. But I think this is a big difference. The reason why... The Japan does not do it in a sort of an in-house system is because there are various reasons, but I think the most important one is that 
the size of the Japanese public institutions have limits. And if you want to do want to have the entire space community inside the JAXA, it is too much. And it will provide, you know, it's not just, you know, having those people paid, but also providing social benefits, et cetera, et cetera. So the Japanese government has the policy to limit the number of public officials and to make sure that the, to, to improve the efficiency of the public institutions. So bureaucrats, the research institutions, the national, you know, um, research institutions such as JAXA have the limit of number of people. And you cannot do that beyond that. So everything based on programs should be given to the external companies and agencies. Running the research institute and conducting the projects are in the two different policy lines, uh, in the budget lines. So you can maintain the JAXA with about uh, 1,700 people, and that is the sort of a more or less a general size. And then the rest of the all personnel required for the program will be hired from other outside non-JAXA personnel, but working in the JAXA facilities and for that program alone. So if the program is over, these people will be back to NEC or MHI, etc. So that is the way in which that Japan, the JAXA and the industry collaborate to each other. And JAXA is controlling the whole program, but industry is contributing to the JAXA program. So what is labeled as a JAXA program is actually the sort of a hybrid combination of the JAXA and the and, and the industry. So this is a little different from the contracting practices in United States or ESA. Um, Japan has more sort of an integrated contracting relationship, but mainly it is um, it is basically the sort of a JAXA industry collaboration rather than, you know, JAXA giving all these orders to, to the industry. Does uh, there exist any kind of um, restrictions uh, on the industry as such because of the way all of these is set up to export or to productize any of these? Uh, because ultimately it's the public money that is coming to these companies as such. And so... Are there any kind of framework or laws that limit uh, any of these companies or are these companies, uh, you know, given that there is public investment in all of them, maybe the public benefits by if these companies do more trade. And so there's more uh, incentive for them to export uh, to inter- internationally and not uh, and also serve locally as such to build up the capability. But then there's also the threat of this technology being used, you know, whatever in the wrong senses or for wrong users as such. So how was all of these kind of things, you know, managed over the last several decades? Um, that's an, another interesting question. Well, uh, first of all, it is um, it is restricted because the um, there is a sort of blurred intellectual property rights. 
Some of that is located in uh, in JAXA, and some of that in industry. So there is, and also, also there are joint patents. So intellectual property is not clearly separated between the JAXA and industry, and which makes it a little difficult when it exports particularly the parts and components. But parts and components can be you know, individually licensed and individually patented. So sometimes it's okay, but in the various occasions, this sort of a, sort of a mixed intellectual property situation may, uh, had it uh, sort of become as a barrier. But I think it's more, more important that the industry does not have the very strong incentive for the export. In after 2008, when the basic space law has has um, has arrived, I think there was a, a change in the mindset, not only in industry but also in JAXA, that we need to export and we need to expand our market. So the government, JAXA, and the industry are collaborating to explore the possibilities of exporting different. Um, the the Japanese satellite to other countries, for example, Turkey, uh, Singapore, and perhaps the most recent case was that Japan launched the Mars probe by UAE, which was launched by H2A. So that was another procurement or export of the service. Um, so there are a number of cases where Japanese um, industry is gradually exporting the uh, the products but that is still very limited in numbers and um, that is because it is too costly for the Japanese uh, Japanese industry to be competitive because this R&D oriented satellite pro- manufacturing processes is very expensive you can't really be competitive in terms of prices because, you know, every time industry try to do something, JAXA intervened and make sure that, you know, the, the process has to be more, more secured, more uh, robust. And, you know, the JAXA doesn't really pay attention to the cost. So, um, they are, they are requiring more secure technologies, proven technologies, and you know, invest more for the safety of the spacecraft itself, which puts up the cost. And eventually, it is not going to be. It, it is going to be very expensive, and no one's want to to buy the Japanese. And it's it's not satellite. You know, it's not flight proven. You know. Many satellites are just, you know, once through kind of project, product, you know, um, because it's an R&D program. For example, if you look at um, ADEOS and ADEOS 2, these are the environmental satellites such as, uh, you know, uh, similar to the Envisat in ESA. You know, they, they just do whatever they put on the um, on the satellite and try to do all the you know new technologies onto the satellite and then you know um, it 
it was supposed to be the satellite to collect the environmental data, but it after 10 months of launch, ADELS is gone. After two years of launch, ADELS 2 is gone. But nobody cares because it's not designed to be actually useful satellite. It was designed to be the R&D satellite. So as long as you can prove that your technology works, then it's fine with JAXA. So, you know, if you have the record of only flying 10 months, nobody's going to buy those satellites, you know, because it's too risky. So I think the Japanese, the weakness of the Japanese export was because of this R&D-oriented satellite programs and uh, collaboration of JAXA and industry. So I think the 2008 basic space law has changed that dynamics and trying to bring the everyone's attention to be more competitive. And that is partially achieved by the sort of uh, Melco doing the common bus, uh, DS2000, and, and so on and so forth. So there are, there are a number of uh, ways in which that the Japanese industry become more competitive in the international market and also uh, provide opportunity for the, the new space. Right. And now, I guess, you know, we can come to this point of um, comparison with new space as such. From what I see in India, for example, the reason why new space kind of thing phenomena emerged is, I would say, the willingness of uh, some of the entrepreneurs to develop products by themselves or services by themselves outside of the public system and, you know, taking risk in terms of investment and having investors take risk in supporting these people to develop original IP that can also be exported abroad. And at the same time, you know, the because they did not have to depend on, on ISRO in India's case, uh, the risk was very, very high and is very, very high. Uh, but the whole goal for them is that they are trying to develop sub, certain IP or certain new products and services that uh, enable them to possibly capture a uh, global market, a uh, global pie in the market as such. So these are some of the very, very broad motivations uh, for existence of new space in India over the last 10 years. And today we have about 50 companies who are in different parts of the ecosystem working away in trying to build their own capabilities and products and services uh, and have no significant investment or support as such uh, through the public system. You know, they they try to work independently as such, and there's not yet a, a procurement system or any other such support mechanisms that uh, have matured enough for these kinds of companies to uh, to be supported. And also, the procurement system is very rigid in India, so people in ISRO have to follow the government of India's procurement rules. So it's almost as if uh, you procure something else in some other industry you know, like uh, something very simple, uh, like a piece of paper. And then you look at how that contracting mechanism can be applied to space. And then, you know, this becomes a rigidity of, uh, you know, procurement systems, not not having the flexibility. And you see this with the U- US with, you know, NASA's uh, Space Act agreement and, you know, things like that that allow 
new contracting uh, rules to be framed and uh, mechanisms to be framed. And that's not really evolved in India. And new space suffers uh, in part because of such things and also because of the incentives uh, in sometimes because uh, many, many people in ISRO might feel that if new space matures, you know, a lot of their activity might transfer to new space and they they feel threatened by, by for their own jobs, for example, right? So there's also that kind of a phenomena that I've observed where people are either excited about new space within the public system or they feel threatened that somebody is building those capabilities that we have in our institution legacy. So can you walk us through a little bit about, you know, the motivations, the origins, and the development of new space in Japan? The motivation for the Japanese new space is pretty much driven by the dreams and the images of space. They, of course, they are, they are following the, the sort of a wave of the um, uh, new space from United States, and they've seen the success of um, SpaceX and the Rocket Lab and, you know, Planet and all that. So there were sort of a general image that this is the sort of a potential market. And and many of um, people who are involved in space are either having the sort of an engineering backgrounds or, or scientific backgrounds. And perhaps the uh, Mr. Okada from the Astroscale is a little different because he was uh, originally a bureaucrat and he has a, a sort of a very unique uh, entrepreneurship. But I, I think many Japanese uh, companies are not really coming from this entrepreneurial background, but they are more coming, more or less coming from the engineering background. So they want to, you know, make the, their skills and their knowledge, and and monetize those uh, um, their, their, and of course because the Japanese companies like Melco, MHI, are again as you said, it's just a tiny part of their the company's activities are in space. So those who want to do space want to go to medical, but they may be assigned jobs in different categories of the activities. So they may not be hired as a space person, but for the, you know, washing machine or air conditioner or etc. So that's not what they want to do. And those who want to do space want to go to space company. And the, and if there is no space company available, then they they are making one. So that that are that sort of a human resources, the entire recruitment system, is making people encouraged to build their own space new space program. In, in that sense, it is interesting that the Japanese. The other point I like to make is. Um, Japanese capital market is much, much weaker than the, the U.S. or any other market. So they tend to be focusing on the niche market, like AstroScale became the active debris removal company because nobody is doing so. ALE, AL is 
uh, actually they are they are launching the artificial shooting star because um, that's nobody is doing the um, that sort of a business. Synspective, which is using the small sat, uh, uh, SAR satellite uh, constellation, is um, is doing so because there's uh, very few companies working on that. So there is no big constellation on the um, telecommunication like uh, you know Starlink or Kripa or whatever. That you know it, it, it's more or less limited to the you know th- those big constellation is out of the out of the Japanese mind because those are already occupied by the big guys in in the US market and and most of the Japanese new space entrepreneurs are focusing on this smaller niche market that they they are they they can be competitive so in that sense, they are they are rational in, in that you know they are seeing the po- potential and possibility that they can they can win uh, win the game. One of the aspects here, of course, is uh, you talked about the niche market and everything else. And question is, you know, how is it different that uh, new space in Japan uh, is different from let's say the traditional industry? Because uh, at the end of the day. You know, all of the traditional industry in Japan has much more manpower, much more ability to invest. These are billion-dollar companies that can easily invest into all of these areas. Uh, they can put in, you know, even a hundred million, saying that we will develop this particular area or so on. But have they no incentive to do this, or you know, why is it that uh, we see this, let's say, divide as such? That's a Another interesting question, but um, I think there is a very straightforward answer because they don't want additional investment. You know, if you want to do the small satellite things or they want to have the different requirement, uh, you know, if you are making a big satellite, you need to have a big chamber and a big, um, you know, facilities. And there, there are number of people who are in you know who are uh, involved in making a more complex and more structured programs and if you want to make the small sat division in the traditional companies you need to create another sort of a division or you know you need to create another company that's much faster because um, you know uh, it's it's not the same thing. You you need to have you need to start from the scratch. Of course, they do have capital, they do have manpower, so they can invest in. But it's not just you know changing uh, here and there, and then you can do the big satellite and small satellite. It's it's more like a you know totally different program. And you have to have the different product line and different understanding of a different way of uh, of production, different way of R and D. So it it is a it it is a different beast. So um, I I think it's it is an additional investment for the traditional company to to start a new company for the small satellite or or much more you know the new space type uh, companies. 
And I don't think many traditional companies like Lockheed Martins or, or, or Boeing is doing the sort of a, a thing. I, I think the Airbus is the unique case that Airbus is, is investing in the smaller ventures. So they, they acquire the smaller ventures, but they don't, you know, it's not that the factory in Toulouse is turned into the small sat factory. It's, it's just, you know, adding the new satellite, you know, buying the new space startups. So I think, um, that's an additional investment. And, and also I think the traditionally the Japanese old space companies are very conservative and they want to major purpose of having a space division is to maintain the space division. So they were happy to have this sort of a, a collaboration with JAXA and receiving the R&D money and maintaining the current business as it is, is good enough. So they are not taking any risks to invest in the startups, which may fail in, you know, in a, in a very higher probability. You, you don't want to invest in a sort of a, you don't want to gamble and investing into a new space, which may lose your money. So I think that's um, that's the reason. Right. And one of the interesting aspects here is about also the investment part of it, because you talked earlier about how, you know, many of the uh, capital availability for Japanese companies, not as uh, big as American new space companies and so on. But it's also interesting that some of these companies like Astroscale have gone on to raise a hundred million dollars plus as such. And this is something that we see in India as well, where the capital availability has changed over the last three or four years with more and more technology entrepreneurs uh, in other sectors, the non-space sectors, in the IT sector and you know services sectors and so on. They have become successful and wealthy and they have started their own investments or they have invested into a venture fund that is then investing into some of these new space companies and so on. So it's a very recent phenomena in the last five years that some of these uh, Indian companies have started to get some sort of a traction in terms of early stage investment. And people have gone on to raise you know, up to, let's say, $10 million in investment in India as such. But beyond that, it is very difficult, you know. So what can you achieve in $10 million is questionable when it comes to space uh, if you're either building rockets or satellites. So the thing that going to the $100 million mark, right? So that's when you don't have any fund size in India, like in the US where you have a fund size of, you know, two or $10 billion fund size, which invests $100 million in some company. It's not a phenomena that is in India in the life cycle of venture capitalism yet, uh, and they will need probably bigger companies like, you know, bigger corporations like Tata or somebody like that who probably will look at investing this as a strategic investment to expand their, uh, you know, their asset or their uh, presence into the market in this uh, particular area as such. So can you walk us through a little bit about how has this investment thesis or investment scenario changed in, in Japan and 
you know, how are some companies, you know, able to raise X amount of money and some other companies like Astroscale able to raise uh, 10 times more money? To some extent, I think that relationship between government and new space are different in India than Japan. The Japanese government is very much encouraging the entrepreneurs to come into space and, you know, starting up the new space program. I think, you know, uh, our report by European Space Policy Institute has shown that, you know, we do have the number of programs prepared for encouraging the, you know, the ideas to come into, you know, those who have ideas to come into the space industry and start up the company and the government provide financial and the technical support. And, you know, in, in that sense, the initial startup money can be granted by the government as the first stage. But what is interesting in the funding situation is that the Japanese capitals, uh, we don't have big angel capitals or, or hedge funds or that sort of, a, you know, a financial institutions which provide funding for the startups. Japanese funding, uh, the Japanese financial agencies are often quite conservative. They don't want to spend too much money on the IT business nor space business. So if you look at the, you know, the, the IT industry, you know, Japan doesn't have any GAFA type services. We, we have very limited, you know, uh, limited amount of money available for the IT programs, so as the in, in space. So what is interesting is that the, the Axel scale, iSpace, AL, Axel Space, and Synspective, you know, these are the sort of new space, the, the prominent new space in Japan. They are receiving the non-space companies like ANA, the Onipon Airlines, or JAL, or pharmaceutical market, the convenience store chain, you know, they are using, they are seeing the space as the sort of a, a big advertisement billboard. And you, uh, they are using the um, opportunities for connecting the space as the dream and the space as the image of the company. So non-space companies are involved heavily in space, investing in the new space. And those are not for the business purposes or not for expecting the business, space business to grow, but it is more like using the space as a billboard and, and using their link to space as a corporate image. So that was a, perhaps the uniqueness in Japan and Probably Astroscale is a little different in a way that, you know, it expands the business internationally. It has a companies in UK and US and um, their operations are supported by the, uh, not only the private non-space industry, but also from the government. The government has the half public, half private investment fund that is supporting the ASO scale, so which uh, constitutes a, a large portion of the ASO scale's business 
capital. And uh, and also, I think um, the ice space, which is to explore the moon and uh, collaborate with India, this ice space is also um, receiving certain amount of funding from the government. So it is a little tricky and it, it's different, but um, to large extent, Japanese government as well as non-space industry is financially supporting for the um, new space in Japan. One of the aspects uh, that I wanted to hear about is this, um, when you talk about Japanese government and, and JAXA, what is the relationship and how the decision-making flows? Because especially when you say the Japanese government is interested in supporting new space uh, entrepreneurs or such, um, and you know, essentially I would say that then it is coming from the highest uh, decision-makers in the Japanese government, which then JAXA is formulating a plan to then support new space as such as such. So when it comes to India, for example, we, we have this scenario where the prime minister's office in India is directly overseeing the space program and the policy making body is the space commission, which is directly sitting under the prime minister's office, which constitutes members from different uh, parts of uh, the government and uh, one representative of the academia as such. Uh, But there is no industry uh, uh, kind of representation at that level of the space policy making aspects. Um, but also not end users. So I don't see any end users being represented in the space policy or the commission itself. So they don't really have a voice really there as such. So there are other decision makers in uh, in either finance or, you know, uh, either security or whatever as such, you know, so those are, or foreign policy, those are kind of the members in the space commission doing all of these kinds of meetings and so on. And you, have, you then have the architecture of uh, decision making where, the chairman or the head of the space commission also becomes the secretary of the department of the space, which again is a is a body under the prime minister's office, who also is the chairman of ISRO. And that was meant originally to keep out any kind of bureaucracy uh, and to have a technocrat as the bureaucrat in charge of the space division so that the decisions will be much faster since they understand the technology and also decision making can become faster due to that. And this is the certain flow. And today we have this complex scenario where because of this kind of a setup, we don't really have the necessary checks and balances to critique the system as much as one would like to in uh, in a sense, right? So that's how, how things happen at the end. So how is this orientation coming up in Japan and how does this either advantage or disadvantage new space? Well, that's... Um... Well, thank you for asking that question. You know, this is, as a political scientist, this is where I'm, I, I feel more comfortable. Um, well, I, I, I would explain before and after 2008 basic space law. Before 2008, we had a very much, well, I think it was more complex, but uh, similar to Indian current system. The prime minister, have appointed the minister on the science and technology, but decision making are done by the space space development commission, which are the final decision making body to for approving the budget, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But these are mainly coming from 
academia and those who have experience in JAXA and uh, and uh, ISIS. The I, I, ISIS is a, a space science institute. So this body is a, sort of a, a retirement home of the old guys in the space community. So they are only reflecting on the space community, you know, smaller, narrower space community, which is only the you know manufacturers and the, and the researchers, engineers, and then the Ministry of Education and Science and Technology, which were the sort of a basic um, powerhouse of the policy making, and then JAXA executes the decision, which are developed by the MEXT the Ministry of Education, Science and Technology. So this was a very much confined in the space community and science and technology community and uh, all the budget coming from for the R&D budget. So most of, you know, it, it was very comfortable for JAXA and, uh, and the industry and uh, MEXT and, and this Space Development Committee uh, which was, uh, you know, uh, also part of the uh, space community. So everyone was happy as long as you have the constant flow of money for R&D purposes. But again, because of this, you know, focusing too much on R&D made it impossible for the Japanese industry to grow, Japanese industry to export. And, you know, there are certain uh, pressure for investing in the military side of this uh, of space which were strongly resisted by the mext because you know if you divert the money to the ministry of defense then their money will be gone so it's it's a zero sum game and everyone is against this idea of breaking down the uh, mext space community oriented decision making uh, but Someone has to do it, and I um, fortunately I was involved in the in this process, and uh, it was a politician which stood up and say, "Hey, this is too much. We need to change." And the politician took initiative to change the whole entire dynamics, and it was the Mr. Kawamura, Minister for Science and Technology and uh, education. So he was actually the one in the, he was the sort of a head of this space community. Well, when he ended the term, he immediately started the study group to reconsider the Japanese space policy. And he hired me as an, uh, as an advisor. And I was, uh, I was involved in the uh, team of the politicians to, to change the space program. So that, as a, that was a, as a result of that, we had um, a basic space law in 2008. And then the, after 2008, the whole structure and, uh, and the sequence of the decision making has changed. So we now have the prime minister at the top of the highest decision making body, which is called the space policy headquarter. This headquarter will approve the entire uh, budget and uh, and the programs so but of course these are the cabinet level so underneath the cabinet level there is a cabinet office and 
and, and in the cabinet office, there is an office of national space policy. This is our focus of the space policy program. But there are people coming from the different ministries, and the director of the office is coming from the METI, Ministry of Economy, Trade and Industry. So it's not mixed, which were the king of the king of the space program, king of the space community before 2008. Meti is now residing as a as a director, and then it's a combination of the mixed and Meti and Ministry of Def- Defense (MOD). So that is the office of uh, national space policy, and then uh, we have. National Space Policy Committee, and that is the supporting sort of a think tank, or let's say the a group of the experts to support the decision making at the uh, Office of National Space Policy. And this is where the budget and programs are discussed and decided. And each ministries, including MEXT, MOD, Ministry of Trade and user ministries like Ministry of Agriculture, Ministry of Transportation, all bring up the idea and requirement and request for the budget to the Office of the National Space Policy at the Cabinet Office. And then it will make the sort of a discussion and set the priority and, you know, who will get how much. And eventually, they formulate the space program, you know, the, the entire space package, and then this package will be approved by the headquarter at the cabinet level. So that is the whole shift. And JAXA is just part of the MEXT. It's a, it's a branch of the MEXT as an execution organization, execution institution. So it's no longer in the center of the decision-making, but it is to provide technical support for the decision-making and the uh, licensing. So that is the role of JAXA. And and we push the space community away from the center of the decision-making. And we include all the users into the uh, user ministries into this. And industry will be represented in the panel of experts. So that is the the balance that we make. Excellent. I think this gives us a lot of foundation to review and also consider a lot of things and implement some of the ideas that you've already looked at and reviewed uh, with Japan. Uh, And one of the interesting aspects uh, moving further on this particular topic is this uh, necessity of a regulator in the system Uh, because at the end of the day you know the structure that you talked about is uh, more or less policy making policy setting and uh, and then you know having uh, to evangelize the the politicians to also follow the requirements and setting together the precedents for industry to flourish at the same time allowing the public to be safe and so on so but then you know you now have an issue where perhaps uh, you need to have a regulator in place that uh, provides the licensing to the supervision, you know, looks at uh, what can happen with respect to export control regulations or, you know, foreign policy related aspects or, you know, uh, security issues and many of these things. How is these uh, organized as of today? Today, it is the Office of National Space Policy is sole, sole provider of the licenses of the space activities 
we have a space activities law and the launch and operation of satellites are, uh, needs to be licensed by the Office of National Space Policy in the Cabinet Office. Export control is something different. So export control will be done at the, uh, another branch in the METI, uh, Ministry of Economic, Economic Trade and Industry. And there is a division which is uh, licensing the export. So the sat- export of satellite has to go through that channel. But um, a- anything that happens in space will be regulated by the Office of National Space Policy. And the, of course, the Office of National Space Policy is the administrative uh, body. So it needs to have the technical um, support from JAXA. And in terms of setting up the uh, technical standards and, uh, you know, uh, to identification of the safety of the spacecraft. And it's uh, it's a little different for satellite and uh, launcher. The launcher is more heavily regulated uh, because it has more um, safety issues uh, than than satellite. So um, uh, licensing of the launcher is more or less um, done by JAXA, but the licensing satellite is more or less, uh, and of course, the distribution of satellite imagery, for example, is also controlled by the Office of National Space Policy. Right. And uh, when it comes to these kinds of uh, institutions, right, so in, in to just to give a kind of a comparison as such, uh, in US, you have mainly four institutions, which is like the FAA, FCC, you know, you have NOAA for uh, remote sensing uh, licensing, and then you have then uh, the Commerce Department. Earlier, it used to be the State Department, and nowadays it's more or less the Commerce Department that is looking at export of all of these things. So you have distinctly four different institutions that are looking at space and and so on. So, you know, in India, for example, now we have this uh, mechanism that the government is creating called InSpace, which is a new institution, which is I don't know if it is a regulator in, in all or people, we don't have enough details to know what is it really looking like at this point of time, but it seems to be a regulator as such uh, in, in having its own technical division and you know licensing uh, requirements that it will put on the industry as such. So, And they're trying to consolidate the, those functions. I hope they consolidate those four different functions that four different institutions in the US have to do because those have an impact on the industry there because many of the US entrepreneurs complain that we have to interface with four different government bodies having you know their own life cycles of applications and everything else so which makes it very complex for them to do a very quick turnaround of developments and such so this is something that we are reviewing continuously in India seeing how can we actually benefit from the lessons from other places in the world uh, and look at what uh, structures that we can create based on their learnings and look at how can we kind of leapfrog uh, to a level where we learn from these kinds of uh, institutions that have already been around for many, many years as such. So when you compare that U.S. Uh, legacy in institutional structure and with uh, Japan, uh, how do you see this evolving, let's say, in the next uh, you know, few years, do you see more and more of this consolidation towards one, uh, you know, one one body or regulator as such, uh, which will interface towards everything where all the entrepreneurs can go to one, have a single window to talk to, and that will help them, you know, uh, 
navigate bureaucracy better uh, or you you think you know it'll still be divided because uh, it then has to flow through to different parts of the government whole idea of establishing 2008 basic space law is to concentrate the decision making and regulatory capability to the cabinet office and the office of national space policy because it needs to be done in order to first of all to leave uh, to take away the the power that the mext already had and to rescue the space program out of the space community to make it as a national strategic issue rather than a space community issue so as a result we need to have the very solid single handed one stop shop which is very powerful and to be able to compete with the uh Max and Jaxa so that was the f- initial idea and the second idea is to bring all the users into the decision making circle so ministry of agriculture ministry of uh, transportation and you know so on and so forth has to come under the branch under the umbrella of the office of national space Pro- uh, space policy so as the result i think uh, all the licensing capabilities and uh, decision making focus all the external communication has to go through uh, this office of national space policy and so we we already have the idea of consolidation of that out of necessity to transform the japanese space program in uh, 2008 uh but i think eventually this is the right way of of uh, of putting to have more coherent strategic approach to the relationship between the government and industry and also the japan and the other countries the other aspect of course which is very interesting maybe a comparison with india and japan is also this uh, evolution of defense space program and how this is going to evolve in the next coming years we had uh, the government of india come up with this proposal for uh, defense space agency and defense space research organization to support uh, you know the growing requirements of the military and um, you know also to sto- stonewall a bit between isro and and the defense community as such and we've not seen a lot of the movement on the defense space agency front also maybe due to the impact of uh, covid on the economy and many other reasons why maybe there's not enough capital within the government to move further on those kinds of decisions at uh, with other priorities uh, coming into play but um, uh, how do you see this uh, you know within the scope of japan as well where uh, the requirements coming up uh, by the military will it have its uh, own you know contracting mechanism own so- sort of a regulatory process and and everything else or will it all be channeled also through this uh, you know setup that you now created with the uh, you know 2008 uh, basic space law changes and everything else um, or is this 2008 changes purely for civilian terms and then you know the civil space agency kind of a uh, mandate and then you have to relook at what is happening with the defense and then create a new infrastructure that supports uh, policy making and also implementation for the defense 
or will it all be consolidated around the same one? That's another very interesting point on the basic space law. Before 2008, as I said, there was no um, military involvement in the space. So military was totally isolated and excluded from the space other than just using the, you know, the weather satellite or communication satellite for general purposes. But after 2008, the military and the Ministry of Defense were able to do their own. So there is no more limit. There is no legal restraints on the Ministry of Defense to do anything on space, and they would be able to develop their own uh, space capabilities. But they didn't. First of all, because of still there is a sort of a uh, ongoing, very fundamental images that the space should be civilian and space should be peaceful. So it was difficult to Ministry of Defense to step into the, uh, the, the military space. The second is that Ministry of Defense, because for so many years that Japan has developed its own uh, equipment and uh, military system, weapon system, without using the space capabilities, we don't really have the urgent needs to do so. And uh, so basically, there was a no immediate requirement to do so, but it was coming from the different directions to, to allow Ministry of Defense to, to use space. So Ministry of Defense didn't ask for it. It was the politicians who was giving the chance for MOD to do it. So MOD didn't really say, okay, I'll think about it. And then it, it, is, uh, it is not spending too much money on, on space. So for, for until today, you know, the Ministry of Defense is owning, the, the, it doesn't own any satellite. It doesn't have any satellite program yet. And uh, it has developed one satellite under the PPP scheme, like a British Skynet uh, system that the private uh, companies operating own and operate the satellite and the, the MOD has an exclusive use of that satellite. But that's, that's everything Ministry of Defense is doing. And in addition to that, we do have the pressure from United States. So we have the pressure on, first of all, on the SSA capabilities. Japan is located in between the Hawaii and the Diego Garcia. So these are the two bases of the radar and telescope of the deep space network of the United States. So this Western Pacific is the sort of a blind spot for the United States and the U.S. wants to have, want, want Japan to have SSA capability. So, and the SSA is basically the military to military information sharing scheme. So the U.S. military asked or demanded or forced Japan, Japanese Ministry of Defense to build the SSA radar, and they did. So uh, now MOD has the Space Squadron, which is only about 20 people who had the um, 
who had a training at the United States, and then you know to to run the uh, monitoring station in uh, Yamaguchi Prefecture, and now which is the, w- where they are building the SSA radar. So that is basically a, about what is Japan, what Japan is doing. But in the future, I think there will be a gradual uh, involvement of the Ministry of Defense. I think in the last 10 years, Ministry of Defense has gradually recognizing the importance of space. And I think they are now trying to introducing the drone reconnaissance uh, planes or um, more, you know, space-based weapon systems in Japan. So we will have more comprehensive space capabilities in the future. But today, we don't really have anything that is uh, that is exclusively military purpose space systems. So I think it will take more time and and uh, and largely because Japanese self-defense force does not have the sort of a strong ambition to go beyond its borders. Of course, we do send the PKO, you know, peacekeeping troops, or we need to have the uh, monitoring capabilities of North Korea and China. But the other than that, we don't really have the sort of operational capabilities outside of Japanese territory. So basically, I think uh, without such a global intention or global ambition, it's the space is not the sort of a primary, primarily important infrastructures or the, the items to be to be procured. So still, space is is not on the high on the agenda of the Ministry of Defense spending. One last final question before I can let, let you go. Thank you again so much for taking so much of the time in you know giving a lot of these kinds of insights. And probably we should have another session at some point of time to dwell down on the exact you know things that you had to navigate when it comes to policymakers and the dynamics of you know this change in the framework of uh, space policy and law and go very intricately into that uh, aspects of it because uh, i think there's a lot of learnings on how do you convince many people in in bringing them all together and how do you manage conflict of interest between different institutions and different people and so on so i'd love to you know get my thoughts together on that particular aspect and focus exclusively uh, a part episode on on that related aspects because for me i think uh, this is a key lesson that we want to learn uh, in india as well but let's say for this particular episode, the final question I want to ask you is, uh, where do you see new space heading in 10 years in Japan? And if defense will also bring in a new wave of companies that uh, will look at new space from a military perspective and will productize certain things that uh, the military would need, and that will be a new branch in new space in Japan as well, apart from the already traditional you know, existing niches. And then, you know, how many companies do you foresee or any sort of those kinds of guesses that you may have? The new space in general in 10 years is not going to be 
extremely expanding, but this, you know, slowly but steadily expanding. I think um, it's not like a gamble. You know, you make the 10 company and then one survive is good enough. I, I don't think the Japanese mentalities and Japanese way of doing the space, space startup is not like, a you know, you boom or bust kind of um, adventure. It's more like a, you you uh, trying to build up the business case and trying to see the risks and the benefits and, you know, you plan ahead and trying to minimize the risk and then you gradually step by step going up to the, you know, uh, to, to achieve the goal. So I think in this case, I think Jap- Japanese new space is not going to be the sort of a uh, huge, you know, uh, expansion in, in, in numbers. I, I think it will be uh, surely and mostly focus on the niche market. Um, you know, these people will, you know, steadily increasing, but it's not going to be, you know, something of the, because it's uh, it's aiming for the niche market, it's not going to be in the center stage of the new space. And I think this trend will go on for next 10 years. Military may involve new space, but military are more comfortable with working, working with the traditional space. And, but even military, the self-defense force and the Ministry of Defense are not involved in space. So they are, they have the, of course, they do have contacts with uh, Melco and NEC, but they are not heavily invested in them. I don't think it's going to have the guts to go for the more insecure, inexperienced new space. I think they would have, if you have the mature space in, you know, government industry relationship in the defense space, I think it would, it may have the, uh, the new space may have chance to, to get into it. But I, I think Japanese uh, military space is going to be, you know, it, it first needs to mature the relationship between the traditional space and the Ministry of Defense before it goes to the new space. And thank you very much for the time. And uh, it's been very, very insightful. I think uh, we'll have to reflect a lot of these things uh, in India. Japan is always way ahead and, you know, it gives us a source of inspiration to look at and a lot of lessons as well. Yeah, we do have a lot of similarities and uh, differences. And I think there are I mean, this is a kind of a case that you can learn a lot from from the other's experience. And I think, likewise, you know, we learn a lot from the uh, Indian experience. And I think it is always uh, good to know what others are doing. And I think it is extremely important that you get out your, you know, you get out of your box and think outside the box. And that's where the innovation comes from. Absolutely. So thank you very much again for taking the time. And uh, I'm sure that uh, if you're willing to do this uh, second episode again, I would love to set up a time exclusively focusing on the political aspects as such, because I know that uh, 
I did not bring the full political scientist in you out of this, but uh, I hopefully, you know, we can do that in the next one. I'll be happy to. I'll be happy to do do so. And uh, I I also lo- love to to understand how things work in in India as well. 